on air with the Pirate Monk Not Podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's coming. the inaugural broadcast of the Pirate Monk Radio Show. Yes, friends, it is true. We're coming at you actually live from high above the Mellow Mushroom in downtown Metropolitan Franklin, Tennessee, the Pirate wow. Monk Podcast. say that again, Nate. Yes. You've never got to say that before. Say it again, man. <laughs> we are coming at you actually live and in color. From high above the Mellow Mushroom in downtown metropolitan Franklin, Tennessee. Yes, it is true. If you are listening to us now on Blog Talk Radio, you can interact with us. You can send us a tweet. You can massage our feet. (laughs) And that, of course, is our co-host from the left coast, Aaron, the porn pastor porter. Welcome, Aaron. (laughs) Yeah, really? Let's start a new thing, but let's bring in old things. Please. That was actually pretty good. No, it wasn't. Don't encourage him. (laughs) And I'm hearing our uh, fearless, peerless engineer, Mondo. Hello, Mondo. Hey, hey, what's up, guys? All right. Now, we're working with some new technology. We're going to ask our listeners to bear with us while we figure this out. But I'm excited about this technology. Uh, it's going to make us po- it possible for us to actually broadcast this show on a very regular basis. Every yes. Wednesday, we're going to be able to be on the air because it matters not whether we're all in town. Uh, and the cool thing is our listeners can reach us. They can call in and talk to us uh, on the guest line, and that is three, uh, area code 347 850 1769. Yeah, I'll wait a second while you get a pen, and then I'll give you that number again. Well, Aaron, how you doing, bro? Wow, that is a complicated question right now. I'm doing. I am. I'm pressing on. Living by God. God. God is good all the time, right? (laughs) It has been an interesting season. Uh, We are. Still in the middle of this adoption, uh, getting through all the social worker stuff and all the financial strains that that brings, but that is part of the delight of adoption. Adoption is not supposed to be cheap because we are adopted children of God, and that was the most expensive adoption in the history of the universe. So... Uh, that that is why uh, I would never want adoption to be cheap. It is it is part of the reason that we do adoption, so that we get to experience that. So, anyways, yeah, we're we are trying to live in that faith spot, and uh, every month we get to wade out in the Jordan a little farther and uh, ask God, "Are you going to stop the flow yet? Because it looks like we're going to drown." Mm, I'm hearing you. I'm hearing you. 
Well, uh, Mondo, it's been a few weeks. It's been a minute, as they say, since we uh, sat down to do a podcast. Anything yeah. new, exciting uh, in the Grimes world? Oh man, uh, this kind of the train's just moving, man. No, uh, yeah. no forks in the road. You know, everything's pretty steady. Uh, okay. Everybody's good and healthy, and uh, yeah, man, no surprises, which are, which are good. Okay, <laughs> you know, but everything's pretty chill, man. It's, uh, All right. Yeah, we're good. Well, Let's get right to it then. We have got a great show today. We've got some uh, remarkable guests in the studio with us, Justin and Tricia Davis, authors of Beyond Ordinary. We're going to get to them in a little bit. First, uh, one announcement. For those of you who haven't heard, the Samson Society now has an app. Yes, sir. Uh, Want to get the meeting format on your iPhone or iPad? Uh, Want to be able to look for meetings right there on your mobile device? Uh, want to be able to uh, learn about some of the history and traditions of the Samson Society? Well, uh, John Scudder, one of the original dozen Samson guys, has written the app, and you can download it for your Apple device at the iTunes Store or for your Android. You can get it at the Play Store. Links to both are on the Samson website, samsonsociety.net. Man, we are taking all these leaps into the technological future. I'm frightened. Slightly frightened. <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, soon uh, we'll be visiting you via hologram. It, not too far off. Uh, how, about we open, how about we open the mailbag, boys? What do you think? Yeah. You want me okay. to read the first letter? Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We got we got a letter from a friend here that says, "Here's a question. I would like to hear discussed on the podcast. Have you had experience with guys who monopolize the meeting after the meeting? This is a guy, theoretical guy, of course, who has something to say about anything being discussed and soon hijacks the conversation. He does not seem to respond to subtle correction or direct conversation." confrontation, or at least for long. Would love to hear your thoughts. Wow. Kick, okay. kick that over to Nate Larkin. Okay, well, for those... Cause, cause Nate's very ahead. confrontational, as you all know. <laughs> he loves to confront people. <laughs> no, I think you have us mixed up, Aaron. Um, oh. First of all, for those of you who may not know what this question is about, if, the meeting after the meeting is uh, it's a standard part of life in the Samson Society. We have a regular meeting. Typically, it's one hour long. It follows a structured format. During that meeting, when a guy, we try to give every guy a chance to share. And while a guy is sharing, nobody's allowed to interrupt him or question him or step on his lines or anything. He just gets to say his piece. And then, uh, typically, we leave that place, wherever the original meeting is. We go someplace else here in Franklin, Tennessee. We go down to McCreary's Irish Pub for the meeting after the meeting. And that's when we can have some informal confer- uh, conversation. And what I'm hearing is that in the meeting after the meeting at this group, uh, there's one guy who just will not shut up, and it's killing the night. Uh, my... Uh, my initial uh, thought is this. This guy needs help. Uh, if he's doing it there with the Samson guys in the meeting after the meeting, then you know he's doing it at home too. He's probably doing it at work. Uh, here's a guy who is not listening, who's not respecting boundaries, uh, who's so self-focused and so self-centered 
that he's not even recognizing that other people are in the room and have thoughts and feelings. And, um, and you know that he's paying a high price for it uh, in the quality of his relationships. And the people who are connected to him are paying a high price as well. So obviously we want to love this guy. We want to help this guy. And we've got to force him to see this problem, this character defect. We care about him at all. We've got to help him see it. Uh, and that means we're going to have to get confrontational. Sounds to me as though uh, we've already tried the subtle hints, but here's a guy who's deaf and blind to subtle hints. Yeah, but pause, pause there because you said something really important. I want you to blaze past it. Okay. This is this is really the people with social retardation. Yeah. Really do not realize when they're in the moment that other people see what they're doing, that they have such a need for attention mm-hmm. that they have to shift the conversation back to them. Yeah. They, they think they think they're being smooth because even the way that our friend here wrote the letter is he thinks he has something to say about every discussion and then he hijacks it. Yeah. And so he thinks he's being smooth with it and everybody sees it and yeah. it's really annoying to everybody. So we actually have to see in a person like this, wow, there is something really hurting in this person, really yeah. broken in this person that they have this need. And if I'm going to engage and confront it's because I really want to come in with some gospel hope and touch that need, not this guy's annoying the crap out of me and he's wrecking my meeting after the meeting time when I just want to have some fun. Yeah. If that's the reason, then confrontation is not going to go well. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. yeah Continue, have- Nate Larkin. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, people sense the spirit with uh, the, uh, with which we engage them. Confrontation with love can can be uh, typically can be received, but if there's hostility, uh, conf- uh, you know, unforgiveness behind that, uh, people will recoil. So yeah, you got to we got to get in a frame of mind. We're going to do this because we love this guy. It sounds as though somebody has already had a private confrontation with him, taken him aside, which is a good first step. That's what we want to try first. We don't want to shame a guy by bring it, by by confronting him in, in the presence of other people if we can help it. So uh, first step is to take him aside for a private conversation. Brother, I don't know if you notice what you're doing. I guess you probably don't, but here's how it's coming across. Um, if he still doesn't listen... Well, good thing he's part of a Samson group uh, because now he's got brothers who are kind of in covenant with him. So I think we follow the steps of Matthew 18. We get a couple more guys and we sit him down for a meeting after the meeting after the meeting uh, and have a very direct talk and preface it and follow it with – you know, by saying, look, man, we love you and we want you to stay in the group. Uh, and maybe after you hear what we have to say, you're going to be tempted to run. Please don't run. But here's what we see. Here's what's happening. And I think after that confrontation, after that conversation, then if he starts doing it in the moment, slips back in. And I have some sympathy for this guy because I've been known to do this myself, uh, especially after a beer. Um, his brothers have got to step in and say. You know, brother, you're doing it again. What do you think, Aaron? I think, I think that's yes to the get the guys together. 
I think the fact that he has not been able to stick with, uh, again, you said he hasn't been able to respond to subtle correction or direct conversation, at least for long, which means he did attempt it, but he couldn't pull it off. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a practical thing that these guys can do to say, all right, you, you saw that, you know, bring up that last time that the confrontation happened. You know, mm-hmm. we brought this up and you tried. And I appreciate that. You did a good job here, but you're doing it again. So how can we put some signals together that are subtle just between the three or four of us? Oh, so nice. when you're doing it, we give you some signal and then we kind of laugh about it and keep it lighthearted. Say, dude, we get it. It's it's cool. We love you, but we want to give you a signal, and we want you to participate too. We don't want you to just turn into a wallflower because you're obviously not. You you're a loud, gregarious person, but we want to give you a signal when you're hijacking, and yeah. get really practical and keep it light. That way, he feels like he's being welcomed in still. Yeah. But there are guys on all sides. They're like putting their hand on his shoulder. Maybe that's the key when he starts yeah. going. Yeah. And it's like one of the guys just like gives him a, a little hug around the shoulder and says, oh, Bill. And that's the sign to, oh, Bill, shut up. Yeah. But you just leave the shut up off of it. But he knows. <laughs> that's that's what's being said right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. All so right. So I, I would just add that practical piece to it. I love it. I love it. Uh, how about another letter, Aaron? We got another letter? Yeah. Uh, I'm listening to your podcast on grandiosity right now. Podcast 90. I'm that guy. (laughs) That guy. He's that one guy that was listening. Uh, I'm in the military and struggling with pornography and anger issues. I recently moved and have been removed from my Samson friends. That's rough. Military service pornography and removed from Samson friends. Uh, I've tried several other groups and can't help but feel that these other guys just don't seem to have what I need. At the same time, I find myself feeling superior to them. I've voiced my concerns, but their focus is on discipling, memorizing scripture, and having quiet time every day. I found myself resenting these guys. They're all good guys, but I always feel inadequate around them. I know a lot of this is my own issues, but when should I call it quits on trying to befriend these guys? Am I incapable of making normal friends, or should I stick with Samson guys? Not that these guys aren't normal, but I feel like I fit in with broken Samson guys better. I still find myself dealing with a superiority complex around Samson guys, too. How can I get a hold of this issue? Because I carry it with me in my marriage, thinking I'm superior to uh, to my spouse, and in my career, and in friendships, and in the church. I constantly struggle with desires to cheat on my spouse and relish sometimes the idea of how bad it would hurt her. All the while, I feel completely inferior and destined for failure in all aspects of my career and sexuality and marriage. I've never felt further from my Savior. What do I do and where do I go from here? Incidentally, I also have a grandfather who sexually molested my aunts as children. This fear has also played into my current situation. I have cheated on my wife before we got married and kept that from her for almost a year. So I guess you could add lying to my lust and anger issues and arrogance. 
My wife has been nothing but supportive and loving and forgiving with all of this, and I couldn't be more blessed. I'm open to anything to change. I don't ever want to forget my sins, but I want to remember Christ's sacrifice for them more. I'm feeling far away from that, like I'm trying to earn my salvation. Wow. What a great letter. Yeah, you can tell from the tone of the letter that this is a guy who's been in a Samson group uh, because he's learned how to see and own his sin. Uh, and he just lays it out there fearlessly. I don't think you can talk as honestly about what you're battling as this guy has unless you really have had an encounter with the gospel. And, uh, and for those... For those people that haven't been in Samson groups, what he's describing, uh, I I believe, because I think I've been there, with these uh, new friends that just want to study the Bible, memorize scripture, and all of that in lieu of genuine relationships, mm-hmm. uh, that that is so frustrating for a person that wants to figure out. It, it's not that this guy does not want to engage scripture. Right. But he wants scripture to engage him. Yeah. And when you get around people that want to fill the entire time with let's talk about what this Bible verse means in historical and uh, expository and hermeneutical context, but it never gets to the point where it says, yeah, but I'm still this kind of person. Yeah. And I just spent an hour talking about James chapter 2 that starts to really break a person's heart. And uh, when a, when other guys have not experienced really getting into their own heart and what the gospel means, that can feel very isolating. You can feel very isolated in the midst of other Christians. Yeah. So yeah. what do you think? What's your first thought for this, this friend? Well, yeah. I'm really glad that uh, this guy has seen that beneath uh, his lust and his anger, uh, his pornography thing, he identified grandiosity, which is another name for runaway pride, as a root of the problem. And he understands that it's pride that's driving this thing. And it's amazing how I I really do think that humility uh, is the root of all the Christian virtues. And, um, you know, we're admonished by uh, the Lord to humble ourselves. Uh, We're kind of offered the opportunity to humble ourselves. You know, humility is inevitable. Before it's over, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But humiliation is optional. And if we choose a path of humility, uh, then we can find our way from humility to love, to forgiveness, to gratitude, uh, you know, to joy. And um, so <laughs> I, there is so much room in this letter for deeper and deeper and beautiful gospel encounters. Yeah. And uh, boy, it's not something that can simply be said here on the show and and then it's done. Oh, I understand it and, and now it's fixed. Yeah. It's something that has to be uh preached to oneself every day 
in in different and growing ways yeah. because that gospel reckoning, uh, be, be, just the convoluted nature of the flesh piece of our heart. You know, you listen to the letter, and it reminds me a lot of stuff you said in your story. You know, I don't relate to it because I'm by far the most humble person on the planet. <laughs> but when when you've talked about your past, <laughs> you've said so many of these same things that you would have this incredible uh, pride over people who were sinning while feeling so sad and inferior that drove you to sin. So yeah. it, it, it doesn't even make sense, right? Yeah. You become the egomaniac with the inferiority complex. The piece of crap. Exactly. Right. It, and, and so when you step back and you look at that, you're like, what in the world? Now, I, I've totally experienced that, of course. Yeah. Our, our flesh does not actually make sense. Yeah. But what the gospel says is, well, okay, that's that's all within a, a wisdom that's built in this system. Our pride is built on stuff that's total baloney. You're yeah. feeling superior to people based on uh, issues, circumstances that it's not real. Yeah. Uh, your 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 humilification is built on failure that Christ has already taken care of. Okay, forget all that. Now we go yeah. to the gospel, which says my identity is only ever in the person and the work of Christ. Who yeah. is Christ and what did he did and do and what does that mean to me? Who am I in light of Christ? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what makes me, me. None of the other stuff. Yeah. Do I have to remember my sins? Yeah. No, that's that's not really I need to remember Christ. That's yeah. that's my only focus and daily all of the rest is filtered. Yeah. The first thing that gets hit is the filter of who is Christ, what did he do, and who am I in light of that, and then I filter the data. Yeah. Yeah. And when yeah. I look at these guys, they might not be his best friends. He might not ever make a deep connection with these guys because they might not be ready to make that connection. Yeah, That's yeah. okay. That's not a failure on his part. But he can still look at them through that same filter of Christ and look at them with compassion yeah. and longing so that he's bringing that gospel hope to them in the same way. So when Christ yeah. is our filter for every piece of data in our life, we bring that kind of grace to ourselves first yeah. and our identity based on our brokenness and based yeah. on our success. Neither our success nor our failures end up changing our status when we first look through the filter of Christ. And then when we come to our spouse, when we come to our children, when we come to our friends, it changes how we treat and behave and respond to them. Yeah. You know what strikes me as I listen to this letter? It's just it's the one line that just made me laugh. Uh uh, not that these guys aren't normal, but I feel like I fit in with the broken Samson guys better. Uh, as though these, uh, the fellows who were, uh, you know, they're being disciplined, man, and they're doing the daily quiet time and they're uh, memorizing scripture. Uh, yeah, I, I, as though, you know, they're normal. Samson guys are broken. Well, uh, well it, that just sounds like Jesus, right? When he says to the Pharisees, I, I came as a doctor comes for the sick or for the healthy. Yeah. I came for the sinners, not the righteous. And yeah. he's saying this to the Pharisees, saying, like, you guys are the righteous. I know. I, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, um, 
and and yet I also know that in Samson, you know, when you finally start to see your sin, name your sin, and it's easier for us who've really kind of gone down to what everybody recognizes of the moral depths. It's easy. It's easier for us to recognize our sin than it is for guys who've been working hard and keeping it together and staying out of the ditch sexually. It's it's very, it's tougher for a Pharisee to see his sin than it is for a publican, right? Um, but oddly enough, it's easy for us Samson guys to fall into a trap. Uh, uh, Bunker, Dave, our friend Dave Bunker, named it early, about two years in to the Samson experience. He taught. He started talking about the arrogance of brokenness. <laughs> Now, those of us who faced our brokenness can start to feel superior to those who haven't uh, faced theirs. And, uh, you know, it's kind of this convoluted pride, but we can fall prey to it. So anyway, my advice to this brother is to is to pursue humility and to walk in weakness around these brothers. Embrace the gospel. Uh, there, I can guarantee that those guys who are working hard are also fighting some losing private battles. And if you'll be courageous enough to talk about your sin in the present tense, uh, and resist the temptation to talk in code, and begin to really talk honestly about where the battle is today, um, you're going to be the safest guy in the platoon or uh, you know, wherever you are. And eventually, at a point of desperation – Somebody's going to talk to you and get below the surface and yeah, share what's I, really going on. Yeah, I think that is the biggest practical for him because there aren't a lot of options, yeah. and that he needs to act as if there, there it is. Act as if. Yeah. He needs to just do his Samson time with these guys, even if they aren't. If they're so not well, participating, that's good. Right, <laughs> and then then if one guy starts going like, well. And yeah, well, I've been struggling with, you know, it might be one guy, it might be no guys. He needs to have no expectation on them because they didn't sign up to participate. But he did sign up to participate, so keep participating. That's awesome. Hey, look, I want to take a quick phone call before we go to a break. Uh, good friend uh, Daniel Mingo, I believe. Uh, Daniel's on the line from uh, Kentucky. Is that you, Daniel? Yes, that's me. Brother, good hey, to hear your voice. How are you guys doing? They're doing well. Thanks for calling in, man. Well, what? I just wanted to call and congratulate you on Pirate Monk Radio. This is cool. <laughs> That's a Indeed. Great you are uh, the first caller. Really? Yeah. We have we have no prize for you. Well, uh, no, no, uh, no, no. We do have a prize. I am going to send oh. Daniel, uh, and 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 he runs a great ministry up there. Abba's heart is fantastic up there in Louisville. I'm going to send him a copy of uh, Beyond Ordinary, When a Good Marriage Just Isn't Good Enough, the book by today's guests. I'll have him sign it to him before they leave. Oh, yeah. Great. Thank you. Yeah. So make sure and stay well, I, stay on the phone well, after we hang up here so that you can give your address to Jay. Okay. Yeah, I saw your saw your post on Facebook, and I thought, hey, I've got time. I can listen to this. Oh. I've been between mystery sessions, so this is great. Oh, man. And how's the ministry going up there, brother? Actually, it's going quite well. Um, yesterday, we had an opportunity. I, I was uh, able to appear on uh, WGIE Christian Radio in the, mm-hmm. for about a half an hour. I had three, two to three minute segments to be able to talk about the ministry on their morning show. Um, this morning, I met with the staff here in Louisville at, of uh, Youth for Christ. 
yeah. and uh, was able to tell them about about uh, Abba's delight, and yeah. uh, it's, things are going well. Okay, fantastic. Well, thanks for calling in. It's great to hear from you. Hang on for just a minute, will you, Daniel? All right. You're welcome, okay. buddy. Thanks. <clears throat> okay, bye. And uh, we will be right back in just a second with our guests here on the Pirate Monk Radio Show. The Pirate Monk Radio Show, uh, here with the new format, with the new technology, we're figuring it out as we go. How are we doing, Mondo? Well, we don't know. We don't we, have much. Yeah, we, we are doing quite well. Okay. All so right. We're winning. Winning. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to bump it ahead. We did have a story to read. Uh, by the way, I've got a great fund of stories, Samson stories, that guys have sent in. We're going to be putting those together. I'm starting uh, right. Uh, I started today editing those stories, and we'll put together a collection for Samson guys. We'll start reading them on uh, subsequent editions of the show. You're not going to want to miss that. Uh, but I do want to get to our guests uh, because we only have half an hour left. Uh, with us here in the studio, although unfortunately not where I can see them. We're figuring this out here. We're having to uh, isolate ourselves uh, for audio, for for, for uh, yeah, sound reasons here. So we don't but get. See, the, I, I really I love it because yeah. I have to be in a different room all the time. So I like that you're in the same building, but now you're forced to be in different rooms on the phone <laughs> recording all of this. That's just, <laughs> that's funny to me. That's just funny. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, the studios here in Mondo Land uh, do have multiple rooms, and they're soundproof because they're set up for recording. And uh, we can sit and actually talk to each other. Well, our guests today are Justin and Tricia Davis, uh, a fine young couple and authors of a great book, an unusual marriage book called Beyond Ordinary, When a Good Marriage Just Isn't Good Enough. Welcome, Justin and Tricia. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, good to be here. Yeah, and uh, you came with your boys who are on who are on uh, spring break. Are they downstairs at the Mellow Mushroom? Is that what's going on? They uh, they have Trisha's debit card and are uh, <laughs> eating their weight in breadsticks and pizza right now. Oh man! Okay. Yeah, I was sitting at the bar when I went down there, it made me a little nervous. I was like, "What kind of is this?" <laughs> they look like no, grown I, boys. I, this could cost you a lot of money if if the show goes long. <laughs> How, how old are these guys? Um, our oldest is 16, but he's in a different school system, and so uh, he's he has school today. Uh, but then our our two youngest are 14 and 10. So um, we knew we were coming to downtown Franklin, and so we thought, hey, let's make a day out of it and uh, hang out with them. So they're uh, they're having a snack while we uh, do the interview here, and then I think we're gonna go go enjoy uh, downtown Franklin. Nice. Well, well, my my 13 year old is sitting doing a. Uh, a math test down in my studio right now. Hey, Samuel, say hi real loud. He shook his head. That's how he says hi. It's, got a sign. it's just a sign language, sign language thing. <laughs> All right. Uh, by the way, let me give this phone number out again. If those uh, we get through the course of the conversation here, you've got a comment or a question for Justin and Tricia. You're going to want to call us at uh, 347 
347-850-1769. That's 347-850-1769. You can also send us a tweet at Pirate Monk Radio or uh, send us a comment or a question on our Facebook page at Pirate Monk Radio or, I don't know, uh, Carrier Pigeon, I think, works as well. Um, so, Justin and Tricia, you guys have been married how long? Uh, it will be 18 years in July. Okay. And uh, it started with a bang. You guys were very much in love when you got married, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, can you describe for us uh, 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 kind of the the track of the marriage? Did it did it did it feel like you started to lose momentum? Uh, did you get pulled into the gravitational uh, field of this world? Did you find things drifting? How did that go? I think when we first met and fell in love, we first met and fell in love, you know, we felt like we were uh, doing what any normal young couple would do and uh, getting married young was not abnormal from where we grew up and where we were from and the fact that we were only married for four months and then found out we were expecting baby number one and Mm. graduated from college and started full-time work, um, I think that there was a lot that hit us in the first couple of years of marriage that made it really hard not to drift. But I think... Along the way, we always felt like we loved each other and were in love with each other, and we would just continue to to fight through all of the transition. But I think, you know, over time, uh, us fighting on our own and not inviting God into a lot of the spaces of our relationship started to catch up with us. Mm, mm, Yeah, yeah. And uh, how did that look when it's – if you look back on it now, and you, uh, you to identify the danger signs when when this romance is starting to become routine. Uh, what are the what are the first uh, what, what are the danger signs along that road? Well, I think you know most couples get married believing that their marriage is going to be different because they love each other differently than. Anybody else, you know, their parents may have gotten divorced or they may have had friends that, you know, got divorced, but we're going to be different. And so I think sometimes we supplement our belief in ourselves for a plan to actually be intentional about our marriage. Yeah. And so that's what I think that's what Trish and I struggled with is we we had great intentions about having a good marriage. We just didn't really have a plan that we executed to have a great marriage. And so we just became very unintentional and allowed life to to kind of overtake us. And some of the things that we struggled with that I think we've seen other couples struggle with are just um, unspoken and unmet expectations that, you know, a lot of couples um, get into marriage and they have these unmet expectations that they start experiencing. Like, I thought that my husband was going to solve my insecurity issues. I thought my wife was going to, mm. you know, not, not you know, um, t- take away my fears or take away my insecurities. And, mm. We, we begin to look to our spouse to be our, our Messiah rather than to Christ to be our Messiah. Yeah. And what we begin to realize is that, you know, another human being doesn't have the power to do that. Yeah. And so we have we, we start creating these scenarios where, um, you know, basically I'll do this for you when you do this for me. And so there's stipulations and there's 
conditions attached to our love, which used to be unconditional. Mm. And so we start, you know, we start expecting our spouse to come through for us before we'll come through for them. And that so was what do you, the, oh. I was just going to say, that was, that was kind of the pattern of our marriage is we had, you know, these expectations that we had of one another. And then we had, when that didn't work, we had milestones and achievements. We just felt like, okay, once we, you know, once we achieve this or once we have our second child or once we buy our first house or once we, you know, once I get this raise at, at, at work, then life will get better. Mm-hmm. And we we hit all of those milestones. We hit all the, we we started achieving a lot of things, and our marriage just didn't really get better because we didn't we never became intentional about it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you do in lieu of that scenario that you just described, which has got to be the most typical mindset of marriage, which is mm-hmm. these are my needs and you need to meet them, and then I can meet your needs. You fill my love tank, and then I'll have enough to fill your love tank, and you're saying there is a better way. Tell me about it. Yeah, I, mean, I, don't, I mean, I think that marriage isn't for selfish people, you know, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of people get into marriage. I know I got into marriage thinking I'm doing this to fulfill something in me rather than I'm doing this to fulfill something in in my wife and and with God. And so I think changing that paradigm is the first step in that direction. I think what I struggled with, honestly, is is five happy hops to great marriage. Well, I'll just read this marriage book. I'll just listen to this marriage sermon series, and then I'll be good. Yeah. Well, marriage is really an overflow of our relationship with God. And so if if my relationship with God isn't, authentic and honest and broken and humble, I'm not mm. going to be able to have that type of marriage. Yeah. And so um, I think that's that's probably my biggest uh, encouragement is to really kind of evaluate the motivation by which, not not just in your marriage, but the motivation by which you're even relating to God. Because yeah. usually how someone acts in their marriage is a reflection of how someone is relating to God in that in that season of life. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that really struck me as I was reading your book, a terrific book, by the way, and I love the way you wrote it in this conferta- uh, conversational tone where you, you're taking turns and chiming in and you're telling the story from both sides. I, it's great for me to hear Justin's experience of your marriage and then to hear Trisha's. And, uh, you know, it's kind of with the two perspectives, I get a three-dimensional view. Uh, I love where you talked about how, you know, you kind of got into this uh, bookkeeping, scorekeeping mode where uh, it, uh, each of you is keeping track of uh, how much the other person owes. Um, and it's amazing how we can fall into that same pattern uh, religiously, we can do the same thing in our relationship with God. That's crazy as it sounds. Um, but yeah, can you kind of describe that to our listeners? This trap of of you owe me. Yeah, I think if you know when you look at our full story over the eighteen years, you know, ten years into marriage, Justin has an affair, you know, with my best friend, and because he was a pastor, and through those choices we lost everything. And I think it's why people buy the book. It's why people kind of, you know, sit up in their chair and listen to our story 
But what we've come to realize is that the affair was a symptom of much greater issues in our life. Like, Mm -hmm. the affair is what finally woke us both up to our dysfunction and the the reality that it started with the decision of saying, you know, I'm going to keep score. It started Mm -hmm. with the decision of, you know, you keep failing me and not being, you know, God in my life. And so... It started, you know, the day that Justin and I withheld truth from each other and decided, mm. you know, I'll tell you the truth when when you do this for me, you mm. know, and when you don't do this for me, then I'm not going to do it for you. And and then you play nice for a while and you read a book and realize that you're not supposed to do, you know, marriage like that. So you on your own try and do better. And then you do something that, you know, ticks each other off. And it just sets you on this course that, you know, you drift for a little bit, you just kind of seem a little farther away from each other, but the more that you continue to say, you know, I'm not going to grow in my relationship with God, and I'm definitely not going to grow in my relationship with you, that catches up to you. Yeah. It puts you on a path um, that, you know, I had to make a choice when the affair happened if I was going to say, see, that was the ultimate scorekeeping tool. Mm -hmm, You mm -hmm. did what I knew you would do, and so I'm done, and I'm walking Mm -hmm. out of this. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want to be a bitter person. I didn't want to stay resentful and under the weight of that. And I I had to make a choice. Was I going to choose to look at my own life and realize that my scorekeeping, you know, my um, withholding the truth of how I was feeling bitter and resentful towards Justin played into, you know, the destruction of our marriage. And I couldn't behave my way into a better relationship with Justin. And I think that what the affair did gave us an opportunity to really choose to be broken. Mm. And I think that most of our, you know, people listening, most of the people that, um, you know, through our story, Justin confessed um, a 10-year pornography addiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, He confessed, you know, being abused as a child. And those things weigh on you and they shape you in the smallest in the biggest ways, you know, we don't think that they shape us, even, you know, the letter that was read of him saying, you know, the dysfunction of his grandfather and and how that played into what it did to his aunts. And it's passed through generations. And when we don't have a name for it, we don't know how to be healed from it. And it starts to play out in these little things that the little things then drift into big things. And um, I think that that's where our, our marriage began to heal is when we both chose to be, not broken for each other, but really broken before God. Wow, that's a that's a huge statement right there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are a couple things that really stuck out. I, I'm just so um, thrilled, and I th- it's so central uh, that you had the insight and accepted the insight that the affair was not the problem. That the affair was a symptom of a much deeper sickness that affected both of you. You know, I tell my story and, uh, you know, my years of infidelity to my wife and people marvel that Allie and I are still married and they look for an explanation. And and really the best explanation I can offer is this. My wife um, received good gospel counsel and good teaching and um, resisted the temptation to focus solely on my sin and to take uh, – uh, and sees the right then to leave the marriage. And she today sincerely believes that we are sinners in equal need of grace. 
Uh, and so she worked. Uh, she allowed me to uh, do my own repentance, and she did hers as well. And man, what a difficult thing to do! I tell you what, I was ju- I was just with a guy. Uh, I spent last week uh, speaking in Canada and Alberta and in Ontario. I had a lot of conversations with a lot of guys, and one guy just burned up with resentment over a wife who'd had an affair and uh, wanting to know what to do. And the only thing I could tell him is, brother, focus on your own sin. You have to focus on your own sin. Justin, what would you add to that? Well, I mean, every time, you know, every time I I hear Tish, you know, kind of talk through that, I mean, it's been almost eight years, and obviously, you you know how it is releasing a book. You have multiple conversations about the same content. It still moves me to tears just thinking about, um, her willingness. Yeah, you know, I tell people all the time the greatest gift that she gave me was was um, not saying to me, "Why don't you go get fixed? And yeah, it better come back and we'll we'll work on this." But she chose to die with me. She chose to um, look inside her own heart and say, "Okay, you made destructive choices that are very visible and very public and cost a lot more, but I've made destructive choices." that have had a smaller cost but it's still added to the grand total of loss. Yeah. And I wanna and I wanna I wanna I wanna find redemption for that. Yeah. And so um I think that that's um that's the biggest issue facing a lot of couples is they focus on the what and not the why. This is what you did, not why you did it. And yeah. and I think Whenever you do that, you you medicate the problem that you're facing until you feel somewhat better, but then you usually end up repeating the same problem again or experiencing the same loss again because you never really got to the why. Yeah. Especially being willing to go deeper with me and and understand why I was broken and and why I made some of the choices I did um, allowed, allowed her to be a partner in our recovery and not just a bystander waiting for me to get better. Yeah, yeah. Now, as I as I listen to you guys talk about this, and this is so, uh, your story is not uncommon, uh, unfortunately, which is why uh, your story is so necessary. Mm-hmm. And I think of all of the people that that keep books with the records in them. But anybody who keeps books has to know that they cook their own books. Everybody cooks the books. (laughs) Which means I do not accurately keep the score of what you're doing versus what I'm doing. So when somebody finally takes a step that is uh, as, quote, big as having an affair... Like you said, Trish, that's like, oh, good, I have the ultimate. So I've got the, I've got the Yahtzee now. I've got the mm-hmm. biggest score on the sheet. Mm-hmm. And as I've watched people, uh, the person that had the affair in that situation just feels often defeated. Like, well, fine, uh, I definitely am broken by this, but I still have all of these things that I feel so hurt and angry over. And unless both people can come, this process that you're talking about is 
is really hard for people to get to because that's a lot of honesty of throwing away all of the all of the lies that have been put into that scorekeeping. There's so mm-hmm. much deception in that. And so even though there is the Yahtzee on that scorecard, there's still, even for the most people that have had the affair, there will be months of deep regret and I'm going to forget all the scores I kept against you because I realize I did this thing. But six months into counseling, they're starting to remember why they had the affair. And if it's not dealt with, it doesn't go away. And they're just as angry at their spouse six months later and their regret and their shame and their guilt starts to go away and they go back to anger and bitterness. So what is the, what is the, you said early on, Justin, that your relationship with your spouse is going to be a reflection of your relationship with God. So what is the practical process by which someone can start to engage God so that together as a couple, they can start to get really honest about that scorekeeping together and it has to be an individual process. Obviously, you can't start telling the other person how to get more honest about it. But what what do, what do people, what can we tell people who are in the middle of this to start to unravel the incredibly complicated spider web of crap that they've built over years, decades, maybe? Well, you know, it's interesting because um, I think each of us both have our, our own answer to that. Um with with a couple different um, biblical illustrations, but um, just a couple weeks ago, uh, I was I was doing a message um, on the, the, just the whole aspect of grace. And one of the one of the things, one of the principles that I've tried to live by over the last eight, eight years is I want to remember the past and not live in it. Um, mm-hmm. Remembering the past keeps me close to the pain, so I don't yeah. repeat it. Um, but I, I don't want to live in it because that keeps me close to shame and God doesn't call me to live in shame. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, remembering the past brings me to a place of gratitude for grace. And one of the passages that really struck me is this, the passage of where the ladies washing Jesus's feet and, you know, the religious leaders um, kind of rebuke her. And Jesus says, you know, he who has been forgiven of much loves much. Yeah. And, up until that, I mean, this is like just three weeks ago. Up until that point, I was I always thought, man, she had a lot more sin than these religious leaders did. And so that's why she could love so deeply. But then it dawned on me, we've all been forgiven of the same thing, which is mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. Right? So all of us has been, have been forgiven of every sin. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, it's just our willingness to recognize how much we've yeah. been forgiven for that gives us the capacity to love God more. Yeah. And so I want to continue to recognize how great grace is and how amazing it is and how undeserving I am for it. Yeah. Because that keeps me in a place where I don't, I never feel like Trisha owes me anything because I'm eternally grateful for a God who saved me from everything. Wow. And that, that, that really helps, um, that really helps me uh, just keep in perspective of, um, good days on bad days on uh, on days where we both fail. Um, that everything is a gift. Everything is a result of grace, and it's my honor to be able to to love God um, 
because he 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 loved me first, and so yeah. that's I think that's kind of where how I reconcile. You know, and when, <clears throat> when Trish and I started counseling, um, you know, you obviously you, a lot of skeletons come out of the closet in that process, and just being able we could visibly we had each held something back held held so much back from one another we could visibly see the changes in one another day by day as we went through mm. that process. And and I think that's a commitment that both people need to make of, of being honest with one another and sharing truth with one another. And I heard John Ortwood say one time, um, the truth will make set you free but it'll probably make you miserable first. And um <laughs> and so most people don't want to experience misery, and so they they withhold truth. Yeah. And it's in that process of experiencing that misery that God God brings about redemption. Yeah. Well, say so I want to take I, I want to take a call here. We're we're running short on time. Mind if we do that, Aaron, real quick? Let's take That's a call. That's exactly what I was going to say, Nate. Ah, then do it, my brother. Okay, we got a call from Jay. What you got, Jay? Hey, Aaron. Hey, Nate. How you guys doing today? Good, 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 good. Doing great. Really glad you're back. Uh, uh, Nate, I've heard you speak many times, and uh, uh, one thing that has hit me over and over again has been your discussion about the gift of desperation. Mm. And uh, in my own story, I had uh, I was given the that gift of desperation and in that I, I went to the internet and I found Justin and Trisha on the internet. I contacted Justin and we started an email exchange and uh, it's been over two years now and we, we sat down at a Starbucks in Nashville and, and uh, I partook in his coaching ministry and I just want to say how grateful I am to him for that because through that and through uh, my wife and I attending the marriage seminar that they put together, it started to open a dialogue between my wife and I in our own uh, story of, of recovery and, and redemption uh, in, in our marriage. Mm. And uh, it's been a very, very good thing. But I wanted to ask Justin and Tricia to talk a little bit about what does it look like three, four, five years after uh, the bomb goes off, staying on the path and... Um, being true to what um, what God's intentions are for for marriages at at that point, not necessarily after mm-hmm. after all of the the pain and hurt of, of finding things out. And uh, with that, I'll just hang up and listen. Thanks, Jack. I, um, I, I guess my response to that would be. You know, when everything comes out, the thing that everybody says, it's this unbelievable mess. Like, it is, it is so messy. It's like walking into a hoarder's house and not even knowing where to start. But mm. the great thing is is that God's cool with it. You know, like, there is no mess um, too messy for him to handle. And I think in those beginnings, if you can picture a scale, you know, the scale is so tipped and all of the heavy and the ugly and the hard and the the wounds are there it just weighs you down but i think yeah. over time as you start to you know take it off the scale and give it to god and grieve it and figure out what the heck is the path of forgiveness and how how does my past play into who i am and how do i find freedom and 
seeing my identity in Christ, as you start to, as you both choose that hard path, the scale eventually does start to tip. And you'll find yourself looking down at the ugly rather than, you know, feeling like you're looking up and realizing that God's word is true and he says, you know, he makes you a new creation. It's kind of hard to believe that when the scale is so tipped and it feels like there's no way that that could happen. It's impossible. But God is the God of impossible. And as he starts to heal your heart, you start five years down the road out and realize just how different you are. And it's not a better version of you. It's a healed version of you. It's a version of you that God has always destined for us, but we get we get caught up in our own selfishness and we get caught up in realizing some of the things that the damage that has happened to us, the damage that we pour into each other, we don't have a clue really how far reaching that damage can be for us. And so I think, you know, five years, ten years down the road, that's that's the exciting part that you get to look at. It's like Adam and Eve coming out of the bushes realizing that they wanted to hide, that they felt shame. There was blame. Like, that is a part of our story that we can't get away from, but the Father is still looking for him. And the Father forever set out a path for us to have redemption in Christ. And it's like when you get a hold of that, not only does your marriage change, but you want to pour that over to other people. It's why Justin and I do what we do because it's such a an awesome, still painful, still hard. Like, the scale never goes away. It, it, it is a part of who you are, but it also becomes a part of who you are that you find this crazy, audacious, like, sense of pride in realizing I was so screwed up. In fact, yeah. I'm still screwed up. I'm just mm-hmm. a better version of my screwed up self because God continues to heal the parts that I'm willing to give to him. Wow. All right. Hey, we're coming to the end of the show. I know that folks are going to want to get in touch with you. What's the best way for our listeners to reach you and to get a copy of the book? Uh, The very best way is just to go to our website, which is refineus.org, R-E-F-I-N-E-U-S dot O-R-G. And uh, we blog there two to three times a week, although uh, we're shutting it down tomorrow because we're going on vacation. Uh, for a week, so but uh, typically we blog two to three times a week and uh, try to do our best to respond uh, as people uh, email it. They can email us from from the website. Well, Trish and Justin, thank you again so much for joining us. Been a very stimulating discussion here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. We're running out of time. Hope you'll listen again next week if you can. Listen on time. Uh, 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 listen while we're recording, and you can interact with us. Uh, you can call us at 347-850-1769 or send us an email at piratemonkradio at gmail.com. Till next week, Nate, Mondo, and Aaron saying goodbye for the Pirate Monk Radio Show. Hey, yo, hey, yo. Hey, yo.